Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, guys. Hope y'all are great on this Monday afternoon, right? Yeah. What have you been doing today, Patty? Well, I helped a friend out for a little bit this morning with a doctor's appointment. That was a big bit, actually, yes. Yes. And uh, But now I am taking down my... Well, I just took down the Halloween slash Nightmare Before Christmas slash Christmas village. Yes, yes. That is not Sad fun. to see it go. <laughs> <laughs> I almost was tempted to take away the Halloween pieces and put in my Easter pieces so I wouldn't have to do it. <laughs> but you did transform the Christmas tree into... Valentine tree. Yes. I did. There we I go. did do that. So um, it just looks... I know a lot of people like when all the Christmas stuff is down. They say, oh, I just couldn't stand it one more minute, but... I like it. My Our dining room is still set for a winter festival. Could it be that COVID drives us to extreme measures? Yes, it could be, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yes, yes, it could be, I think. I'm not walking around in all these fun little stores picking out cute things. Yeah, I'm having We're, to look at know, something on the internet and praying that it's going to come in looking cute. We're still hiding out. I yep. feel bad with church. Yes, I got up early, went to church early. I, Arthur and his family are covid you know, they're locked in their house, and, and I preached at 9.30, and I taught at 11, and, and but I was so standoffish. I didn't talk to anybody, really. I didn't go visit anybody. But, but I just, you have to stay well. I treated everybody <laughs> like that, the plague or something. It's terrible. Well, Jimmy is also sick. Yeah, so see, Jimmy's to... sick. We, see, we can't lose any more preachers. We're going right. we're gonna to run out. Yes, and, and Lauren, certainly, she did her the share. The store shelves she are going to be empty. Lauren preached on <laughs> Saturday night, Sunday at 11 in contemporary, and, and Kim, did her class. And Kim took 9.30 yes. contemporary. Yep. Wow. So, it was a busy day. Quite an was. unusual day. But we are glad you are here. We are back into Titus today. Um, I'm kind of excited because I have something I want to talk to you about, talk with you about uh, around this. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of especially pumped. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, and you haven't told me at all. I have not. Yes. I want you to be surprised, well, too, you, you know? You want to keep it fresh, right? Yeah, so that, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I have to actually be completely paying attention and you, come up you with will. questions. You will. You <laughs> will. Okay. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered back here today on this Monday um, in January, and we pray, as you do every week, that as we resume our journey through this... Uh, letter to Titus that you will open up these uh, words to us and really help us to hear Paul well and help us to be discerning and wise in in how we think we should read that for our own time in addition to Paul's time. So all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. All righty. So, we are in the second chapter of Titus. We got through the fifth verse last week. Um, so what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to go back to the first verse and read through the fifth verse. I'm going to read through verses one to eight. And I want you to, to follow along. And then we're going to, then we're going to talk about it some because the, there's this whole long section. It's not that long because the letter's not long this whole section in chapter 2 that is sort of one of these household codes in Paul's letters. These were very common in his day. They were instructions for how these, how Christian households were to be run. 
and how and and the life of the people that made up the households the father slash husband the wife slash mother the children the slaves how they were all to live how they all were to to behave in this um in this christian household this household made up of people who have come to jesus so that's what we're going to do so i just we just need to go back to verse 1, because verses 1 to um, 8, really, we just have to enclose things a little bit there. So, verse 1. Okay, Scott, for someone who's just joining us, we are in Titus, Titus. chapter 2, verse 1. While you're finding your way, I'm going to have a drink of my coffee here. Hmm, afternoon coffee. You'll have to tell people about our new ember mugs. Very nice. Yes, we got we, I got an ember mug for Christmas. Keeps coffee warm for like an hour and a half. It's awesome. I also got a uh, uh, another coffee warmer thing, and the two together are perfect. Each one has their you know things you wish they did differently, but together it's unbeatable. So okay, chapter two, verse one. You, Paul speaking to Timothy, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Well, of course, <laughs> right? Teach the older men to be temperate. Temperate. We're going to come back to that, but later, because it's going to tie into what I want to talk about. To be temperate, to be worthy of respect, to be self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. So we talked about each of these last week. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Okay. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. And, and for many people, that's where the hair begins to go up on the back of their necks, right? So that no one will malign the word of God. So hang on to that so that no one will malign the word of God. This, you know, he doesn't say because this is for your own good or that this is what God wants from you. He says no, so that no one will malign the word of God. And then he goes on. This is what we this is where we weren't to last week. He says similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example, Titus. Set them an example, Titus, by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Why? So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So if you look at the end of verse 8 and you look at the end of verse 5, the focus is living a life such that the word of God will not be maligned, so that they can't say bad things about the Christians. That's the idea. Remember in Paul, the idea is that the Christians should be about two things. 
building up the body of Christ, strengthening these 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 house churches and communities. It's what we should be doing about. It's what, it's what we strive to do today, and to be good witnesses to Jesus. So for Paul, you can't be a good witness to Jesus if people won't listen to you. If they ignore you, how can you be a good witness to Jesus? If they run away when you're coming because they think you're mad or crazy or wicked, how could you be a good witness to Jesus? You can't be. You know, in the early centuries of Christianity, people were drawn to the Christian movement because of how the Christians lived. And in a very rough, very violent, very sexualized Greco-Roman culture, deep down people knew that they wanted some of what the Christians had, that they could raise their children in peace and safety and stuff. So... But Paul knows that to help that happen, they have to get an audience. They have to get people to listen. So, in these, so what are the, so he has then in a number of his letters, longer and shorter versions of a household code. With an, with, and he talks to husbands, wives, children, slaves. He's about to talk to the slaves here. Um, here he does, he's doing older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves, and different groups that make up these households. And the frustrating part as a teacher is how difficult it is to let go of the idea, for people to let go of the idea, that Paul would write the same thing to us. That all we have to know about our households or about how we are to live is to go back and pick this stuff up, cut it and paste it into our lives, and there you go. You're done. For some people, I guess they find that satisfactory. I don't think it's being true to Paul. Um, it gives rise to books like this one. I don't know if you can see the title, How to Like Paul Again. <laughs> Because, I mean, this came up yesterday in my Sunday class. After class, a fella came up and he wanted to talk about this. Or at least it came up about Paul and his biases and all this stuff. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, well, first of all, we have biases. And then I thought about the letter to Titus. Why do they have, the, why does Paul give them this household code? So that they will be thought well of by their neighbors. Okay? So what does that mean? Well, that has to mean that these households made up of Christians have to live in ways that are pleasing to their neighbors. In, in the language of the Greek philosophers, these Christian households need to be virtuous households, virtuous households. And, you know, I, I guess there are Christians today who start to get uncomfortable around all of that because they think the answer to every problem in the world is found in the pages of Scripture. It's really not. That's not, that's not what the Bible is. And, and in Paul, you see him explicitly urging, for example, in Philippians 4, urging the Christians toward these virtues. And when you begin to, to look at the virtues and to study the virtues, you see in them a close alignment with 
Paul and with what God wants throughout the arc of Scripture, throughout the story of Scripture. And why should that surprise us? It shouldn't surprise us. We are, it's not just Christians who are made in the image of God. It's not just the Jews who are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. So why should it surprise us that enduring lessons about what it means to be human and what and the lives we lead, that wise lessons can span cultures. I have another book on my shelf, Confucius for Christians. Why? <laughs> Why is it there? Why is it written? Because when you read Confucius, you find a lot of alignment in places with Christian teachings. No surprise to me. I think I've often said if everybody lived their lives according to Confucius, people would generally be a little happier. But we don't. The, the, you know, the problem with that, that Jesus solves is not our ignorance about how to live or what is a virtuous life. It's our, it's our unwillingness to do that. That's the fundamental mistake people make about Jesus. They think he came just to show us a better way to live. Well, no. That doesn't do any good because we don't we don't live in that better way. So you want to hear something funny? Yeah, you're talking about this. Yeah, different cultures. Um, I get emails every day from Barnes and Noble throughout the day, and I got one just right before class started, and it's a new book that is called "How to Be Perfect: The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question." Yeah, and the author says it's a hilarious, provoking guide, um, thought-provoking guide drawing on 2,500 years of deep thinking from around the world. By the time the book is done, you'll know exactly how to act in every conceivable situation. <laughs> so to, pr to produce a verifiably maximal amount of moral good. It's a, it is that, yeah, funny. Yeah. It, it, it sounds, funny, like, a bit of a, it sounds like a bit of an oversell, but it kind of makes my point. Is that let's assume this book had all those secrets in it we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. That's our problem. I know how to lose weight. I don't do it. I don't need five more diet books thrust in my hand. I don't do it. We don't do it. That's the history of humanity. That's the history of humanity. Jesus didn't come to solve a problem of ignorance. He came to solve a problem of rebellion against God and an unwillingness on our part to do what we know we should be doing, which is simply to love and to God, to love God and love others. So, okay. I thought but, that was funny. That is funny. And it's by the guy who wrote the TV show, The Good Place, which we really Oh, like. really? Interesting. Well, you know yeah, The Good Place. If, if you haven't ever seen yeah. a season of The Good Place, start at season one. Give it a try. I think you'll find it pretty thought-provoking. And you can tell that a philosopher or somebody very, very interested in philosophy was a key part of making the good place. Okay, so back to the household codes. These things that Paul writes about women being submissive and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So Paul wants these Christian households to be seen by their neighbors as virtuous. In, in the Greco tradition, in, in the Greek, the Greco-Roman tradition, to be seen as virtuous. And so Paul calls them to be virtuous and calls them to live within the patriarchy because if they're going to try to 
be radical rebels busting out of the patriarchy of their world, they're not going to get anywhere. That's just the truth of it. Um, Paul doesn't... You can see in Philemon that Paul understands there's something really amiss with slavery. But he isn't there to put right the wrongs of the world. He is there. Paul is there to preach the gospel because it is God and God alone who in the end can put right the wrongs of this world. So, let's talk about the virtues for a minute because I want us to see that these virtues that would be valued by Titus's neighbors are not very far from what you would think they would be if they came, well, they kind of do come out of Paul's mouth. But, but anyway, let's take a look at them. Okay, friends. So, I actually have a slide. Here we go. Well, not that one. <laughs> so, this is, okay, the cardinal virtues. There are four cardinal virtues that go back to Aristotle. A couple hundred years before Jesus, Aristotle. And they're called the cardinal virtues because it comes from the Latin word cardo, C-A-R-D-O, which means hinge. Hence, my picture. They're the hinge. They're the pivot in life. They're the pivot toward all, the, all, all of the subsequent virtues. And there's four of them in Aristotle. So I'm going to go one more slide. Wisdom, or sometimes prudence is an old word, but it's a pretty good word. Wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And if you look back at chapter 2, verse 2 in Titus, what's the first thing he tells Titus? Chapter 2, teach the older men to be temperate. It's one of Aristotle's cardinal virtues to be temperate. And to be, so let me explain what temperate is. It might be what you think it is. To be temperate is to have control of the of your hmm your animal appetites for food for um, winning for sex all of these powerful appetites, all these powerful desires that can overwhelm us and make wrecks of our lives. And boy, that is most of human literature is built upon people, stories about people who do intemperate things, right? So, so, so temperance for Aristotle was one of the cardinal virtues. Self-controlled would be a, maybe another way to put it, but it's really... It's really having under control these um, these desires and appetites, and, and and making sure that you rule them as opposed to them ruling you. And right there, in in the second verse of chapter two, Titus refers to them. So let's go back to the most important of the four. This is the queen mother of. The cardinal virtues of all virtues is prudence. I've never known. I guess have you ever known so uh, uh, somebody named Prudence? Yeah. 
No. T typically, it's only a, f a, a female name. No, it used to be a, you know, a fairly common name, I think, Prudence. Um, and unfortunately, it's become this whole thing of calling somebody a prude and all that, which is, we could have a long discussion about, but we can call it wisdom if, if we like. So let's talk about what Aristotle meant by wisdom. He said there's two, it's, it's, it's a practical thing. It's a practical wisdom. It is knowing what is good. Knowing the right thing to do. That's the first part. Second part is knowing the right means of achieving it. So it's knowing what is good, what is right, and secondly is knowing the right means to achieve it. Um, understanding the consequences of your actions is 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 wisdom. So you put the two things so it's very it's it's wisdom and it's practical. So if you know your Bible um, decently, you know that wisdom plays a big part. There's a whole section of writings in the Bible called the wisdom literature. The most prominent example of which is Proverbs. Job is another big example. The um, Ecclesiastes is another piece of wisdom li literature. There are little wisdom parables that Jesus uses as he is conducting his ministry. And um, wisdom in Scripture is about knowing what is good. And who, who lays out what is good? God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God. The triune God is, is the one from whom we understand what is good and what is right. Now, Aristotle wouldn't have any connection to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wouldn't have any connection to the triune God. But he still understood that wisdom was knowing what was good and then knowing how to do it. That's Christian wisdom. You know, um, there are a lot of, a lot of Bibles and Bible studies that are all about like life application stuff. You want to figure out how to take every story in the Bible and apply it to your life. Well, that's really all about, you know, practical wisdom. I have a book on my shelf by a woman um, named Beth Felker Jones. The name of her book is called Practicing Doctrine. Because she gets it. Um, the old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Two, two sides of the same coin. What does that phrase mean? They can't be separated. They can't be pulled apart. Wisdom is knowing what is good and then doing it. And um, the other two virtues our courage. It does take courage in life. It, you know, um, Paul knows he's asking for fortitude from Timothy. He's asking for fortitude from Titus. He himself has had to exhibit it. Courage is, you know, strength in the face of um, struggles and challenges. Um, it isn't foolhardiness like playing chicken with automobiles or cowardice. It's courage, justice, 
A cardinal virtue is justice. What does the Bible cry out for? Justice from beginning to end. Amos, let let justice roll down like streams of, of running water, right? Jeremiah goes into the temple in Jerusalem seven, 600 years before Jesus and says to them, you can't ignore the widows and orphans and the aliens in your midst and then come here to the temple and wrap yourself in the temple and think all is well. It's not well. What does God want from you? I'm Micah. Chapter 6, verse 6. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So there are all these connections between the virtues and God's teachings. Aristotle's cardinal virtues in God, God's teachings. And for me, that makes all kinds of sense. Scott? Yes. Uh, John Henson is asking, wasn't yeah. Jesus uh, tempted in the wilderness to push aside these virtues? He was tempted in the world, tested in the wilderness about pushing aside these virtues, which meant pushing aside, pushing aside God, right? And worshiping the devil or, or using his power for his own good. My, my point is that Paul wants these Christian households to live in a virtuous way, of a way that would be seen as virtuous by their neighbors which in their patriarchal society includes women being second-class citizens in these households. And you and I can say, well, man, oh man, it, it, it shouldn't have been that way. And I'm going to agree with you. It shouldn't have been that way, but it was that way. It was that way. And Paul is not about the starting of revolutions around slavery, around the patriarchy, none of that. He understands that in the kingdom of God, this stuff is swept away, Galatians 3.28. You know, we are all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What's that all about? His Paul's understanding that in the kingdom of God, this stuff is swept away. But <laughs> he's not, that's not what his project is. His project is to take the gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, and for them to hear him and to hear him well. And he knows that to do that, these Christians have to be seen as responsible, upright, virtuous citizens of the world, citizens of the Roman Empire. So, if he were writing to us today, into a world in which women rightfully vote, into which women maybe, sadly at this point, there's problems here, go to college more than men, uh, a world in which women are increasingly able to simply live their lives as they please. Um, Paul would write letters to us urging us to be to have virtuous households that our neighbors would see as virtuous 
and peace-loving and, and, and interested in, in, in justice and love and mercy and kindness and these things that Paul talks about. But we don't live in a patriarchal world anymore. Not really. I mean, people, I mean, Patty said she, I often talk about the fact that people, women from our world wouldn't want to go back and live in Jesus's world. Patty doesn't even want to go back to the 50s. Right, Patty? Yes, because this is going to make me sound super corny, but I sometimes watch those old black and white Dick Van Dyke, and I cannot believe how Dick Van Dyke treats his wife. It's just awful. It's so chauvinistic. And that's not that long ago. Wow. <laughs> yes, you are right. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really just a matter of when we come to Paul, we have to let Paul be a man of his time. We're people of our time. Everybody's a person of their time. Nobody's divorced from the time in which they, in which they lived. Um, I, I see these racial questions in America through the eyes, having lived through the late 50s and 60s in the Deep South. I'm not going to see all this the same way as, as, as a young person who only reads about it in books or sees a Netflix documentary. I, I will never see the world in exactly the same way as someone who's born after 9-11. We are, we are products of our times. It's just, it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. It's foolish to think otherwise. And so Paul, of course Paul is. But, but that's what these household codes are about. He... The key is to look at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 8 and you grasp then that what he is about in these is saying to people, this is how we need to live so that people will not malign us, not speak badly of us. Well, why does that matter? So that they will hear us, so that we can be witnesses to Jesus. The Riveras jokingly want to know yeah. and figure out why women only need to avoid uh, being addicted to wine. Well, you know, <laughs> let me tell we could make it worse than that, Linda. In the Greco-Roman world, and this is a place where the Christian households would diverge from the Greco-Roman household. In the Greco-Roman households, the, the husbands were entitled to have sex with whomever they wanted, so long as it wasn't the wife of another man. So any single woman. Any single woman. Wow. Any single woman with no, no societal, you know, uh, finger pointing, no finger pointing at home. Though I'll bet you it didn't always work like that in practice. So there were there were places like that where the Christian households diverged um, from their. From the Greco-Roman world, but though they they were places where people could see, really, that gosh, that Greco-Roman way, that's not a very good way. The the fact that men could be addicted to wine, they would go to these symposiums, and they, remember I said I think it was last week we were talking about the symposia, which were all night drinking parties. The men could go to those all night drinking parties, no problem. However, if a woman did. It would, be dis it would bring disrepute on the whole household, making them what? 
open for somebody to malign the word of God. That's how it is. So just don't think, I don't know, I keep talk, trying to find the perfect way to talk about this, that, that if Paul were writing to you and me today in Plano or Frisco, wherever you happen to live, to live he wouldn't write to us the same letter he wrote to people 2,000 years ago. We got our own issues. We have our own problems. He would help us to understand um, that the kind of life that we should be living, and he would, he would, he would couch it in terms that are I mean, some of it specific to our day. Is some of the stuff he talks about specific to his day, such as the patriarchy. So look at Philippians. Let's, let's just look at Philippians 4 for a second, okay? That's one of my favorite places where Paul talks. Let's go verse 4. Let's say 4, 8. I'm guessing the 8 part. Oh, I did it right. Philippians 4, 8. <laughs> Philippians 4, 8. Because you should kind of mark this place out a little bit. Yes. Because Philippians is a letter that Paul writes to with great love and affection for the Philippians. He feels close to them. Um, they have helped to take care of him. And now he thinks that he is, he is imprisoned and he thinks this may be the end, that the executioner might be coming for him. And so look how he wraps this up. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's a sentence which would have meaning for any Greek citizen. That would have meaning in the pagan world. The term, some of the words come from the pagan world. They're not, they're not church words. You might disagree about what right is, but we are called to do what is right. We are called to do what is good. Aristotle call, knew that the secret... To, to, a, to a satisfying life was through the doorways of goodness and justice, right? And as, because that's how God made us. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, men do have other addictions. You know, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's people who write about Titus here or Timothy or elsewhere, scholars who do often reflect upon the fact that, that Paul is trying to do this while the women want to experience, want to live out some of their freedom in Christ. There's some tension there, I think. Because they see Paul write something like, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Well, they're going like, well, okay. So, yeah. So, I want to live that life in full right now. 
In fact, in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, increasing numbers of women were beginning to throw off some of the patriarchy. They were not, they were not being as roped in as they had been. Um, and it, it, you saw it in, in clothing styles, in how they wore their hair, in their willingness to speak in public, and that kind of thing. And, of course, what happened? It did provoke a reaction. It did provoke a reaction. And it provoked a reaction among some early Christian leaders in the 2nd and 3rd century that weren't helpful. And I don't think they were, the reactions were very Christ-like. I just want us to try to read Paul well and grasp that he would not simply cut and paste the same words and ship them off to us in Plano in 2021. So, all right. Anything else about all of that, no, Patty? No, no. Any thoughts? Okay, so let's look at verse 9. By the way, just as an aside, so we're probably going to finish up Titus next week. Like I said, it's a pretty short letter. We're going to probably finish Titus up next week. And then, following Rich Morgan's challenge in my Sunday class yesterday, I think we will we will go to Isaiah. Yay! I've been asked to do it over the years many times. It's a pretty daunting task, but it's important. Because as I said in class yesterday morning on Sunday, that there's really Isaiah more than any other Old Testament text really shaped Christian theology and Christian understanding of, of who God is and what, what happened in Jesus. Um, there's a famous book, author's name, I'm not going to throw out because I might have it wrong, um, was, that was entitled Isaiah as Christian Scripture. Isaiah as Christian Scripture. So, so I will do that. I'm going to do it on Mondays um, because I have more to work with. I, it's, more, it's easier for me to do slides than I don't really know how it's going to be once the Tuesday class goes back into Piro. And I'd like to create a really good record, a good course, a good audio and, and um, uh, video course on Isaiah that a person could, could, could do. So that's what we'll do. It will take a while. I don't know that we will read every every word in Isaiah. There are just some chapters where we will probably kind of focus on some topic sentences to keep things moving because it just, you'll see when we get there what I'm talking about. And besides, I might change my mind. <laughs> Which I can do because, you know, what, Patty? I'm the teacher. You're the boss. I, I'm the boss. Oh, no, honey. I am not the boss. Yeah, what? I'll tell you a story. Yeah, so, because right here, what does my coaster say? What does your coaster say? I can't read it. You're not the boss of me. Yeah, so we were at a... <laughs> this is where we were newly married. We were at a wedding out in California. And at a, I was outside in Napa Valley, and there was a pool and everything. And I don't know. I might have had... Maybe a bit more margarita than I should have. And I was standing by the edge of the pool. And I was standing too close. Taunting me. 
taunting was I taunting you, you honest were, honestly you was I taunting you the edge with your arms out like look at me balancing on the edge and you said Scott, Scott? <laughs> get away from the edge of the pool you're going to ruin this you're going to make a big spectacle at this lovely wedding and I looked at Patty and I said what Patty you're not the boss of me oh my word <sighs> and then a very sweet friend Vicki Deering Gave me a set of coasters that said, you're not the boss of me. Yep. <laughs> and it's still on my desk. Oh, yeah, baby. That's it. Later. That's it. It okay. was funny. It was funny. So back to the household cold. So he's talked to older men, younger men, older women, about younger women. Now he's going to talk to the slaves. Don't need to talk about that again. Slavery was endemic in the Roman Empire. Um, lots of slaves, lots of freed people. It was just... It was just an institution. It was just the way it was a it was a slave economy. It's the way the world worked. The way the way the world always had worked. Not just here, but in China, in India, in any part of the world you would want to go to. There's not, nothing unusual about slavery being present in the Greco-Roman world. So he says to the slaves, "Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Why? Because that's what they were supposed to do." To try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Boom. One, two, three. Verse five, verse eight, verse ten. The point in every case is the same. Don't let people malign the word of God. Don't let them speak badly of us. Help help your masters to grasp that the teaching about God our Savior is attractive. There you go. You might disagree with Paul about this, that about that being a, a the right approach. I think we can do that, but I do think it's what he's about because he makes it he makes it very clear in all three of those cases, verses five, eight, and ten, what why he is giving this instruction. So. Verse 11, he says, for, for because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That is an important verse. It's one that is referred to quite often. The interesting thing about the verse is that the, you see the verb offers, there is no verb in the Greek. So, woodenly written, it would be, for the grace of God has appeared, salvation to all people. Which isn't that bad a way to write it, actually, but translators always want to put a, a verb in there. So... It couldn't just be gives? Um, in the NRSV, it's brings. Okay. Okay. In the NIV, they change it to offers because they fear, the NIV translators fear that bringing salvation to all people makes it, it kind of opens the door to thinking that everybody's going to be saved. Okay. Which, is, which isn't really the biblical teaching either, but offers is kind of weak because it puts too much on us. You know, our salvation comes from God and we can... 
We can refuse it, I guess. I think it's the best way to see it. But it isn't just offered to us like a life preserver tossed out to us in the water. That 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 takes that puts too much of it on us and not enough, not recognizing enough that it's really God's grace up and down, beginning to end, that that saves us. And it opens the door for to talk about Wesley's doctrine of prevenient grace. Um prevenient grace, uh which prevenient means to come before. So it's the grace from God that comes before. That's, it's just a label he puts on it to talk about this special thing that God's grace does. It comes before. It is what it comes before any of us have any inkling that God is after us or that there or that we maybe ought to be after God. It is the grace which is poured out on a sinful humankind without which none of us would ever, ever turn to God and without which none of us would ever embrace God's salvation. That's all Wesley meant by prevenient grace. Wesley had a very robust understanding of the sinfulness of humanity so much, and the rebellion against God so much that he believed that the Bible taught that to even have an inkling that God is after you, to have the least desire to do not refuse God's salvation, God's got to give you that grace so that you can do that. Without that, you'll just be like what? I guess like a brute, just a... a a dog or a cow or something like that, kind of going your own way, but but never, never ha ne not not even having the ability to respond to God. It's because Wesley understood it's all about God, God, God. It's God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's amazing grace. Um, and and you Christians just have to be careful that we don't make so much of ourselves that we lose sight that our salvation comes from God, pure and simple. We do not save ourselves. Not, not, not in the least. Saying you, saying you have the ability to refuse it isn't the same thing as saying you're saving yourself. It's not. Not the same thing. If, if you're at the bottom of a deep pit and you're trapped down there and God starts filling it with water to flood you up and you don't have to do a darn thing, what have you done? You haven't done anything. Now, you can hang on to some roots down there at the bottom and drown if you want, but just don't think that the water that floats you to the top ever so comfortably is anything that you contributed to. It's God who has saved you. That's a really good way to think about this. Not original to me. comes from Roger Olson down at Baylor Seminary. So, verse 11. He's laid out this, live in these ways. So, we want to make God our Savior attractive so that people will hear. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to the vices, in Aristotle's language, and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in this present age. By this present age, it's a very, that's kind of a technical term for Paul. He means that this age of sin and death in which we still find ourselves. We are in two ages at the same time. We are in the age to come, because Jesus was resurrected. And we are in the present age, the age of sin and death. So we are in two ages at the same time, for the kingdom of God has come already, but not yet. Maybe if I have time next week, I'll bring back one of those slides just to, because I know we probably need to re get reminded about that. But that's a kind of a technical idea. In, in this present age, this age that's still marked by sin and death, we are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. See, worldly passions would be sort of the opposite of being temperate to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, from whom do we learn what a godly life is? Do we really learn that from Aristotle? Do we really learn what is good from Aristotle? No. We learn to appreciate the good, but we don't really learn what is good. We learn what is good from God, because it is God who is good. So we turn to Scripture to understand what the good is. But even Aristotle, pagan all the way, doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at all. He can point us toward the true God and can point us toward the importance of living a life that is good. And if you read Aristotle or some of the other philosophers or Plato, there's a lot in them that... that I don't know. You, you you see, you see God in it. That, that's why the writings of Plato became so influential among Christians. It's why I have a couple of books on my shelf about moral theology that are written by Roman Catholics, grounded in in Aristotle. This this is all God's world. It's all God's world. So in any event. So he says, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Okay, so we're, so we're living in the present age of sin and death. We're waiting for the blessed hope that in a deep sense has already come because Jesus has already been resurrected. But we're waiting for this blessed hope which is Jesus' return and the consummation of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God will be manifest, which means everyone will see, everyone will know, the whole world will be, be wrapped in the kingdom of God. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, so we live the way we live now, and we listen to Paul now, but it's always in the knowledge that things as they are now are not the end. They will not be the end. If Jesus hasn't returned, it's not. In fact, a healthy way to think about it is the end isn't even a point in time. The end is Jesus. So, um, 
Paul is urging them to live godly lives in the present age while they await the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he reminds them that none of this came cheaply. Who gave himself for us. Right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Another place Paul writes, don't forget, you were bought for a price. A price. What is that price? That price was the life of Jesus. Who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us. Redeem is a word like, we used to redeem, <laughs> as a kid, my my mother collected S&H green stamps. That may be true for some of you all. Yeah. And she had S&H green stamps, and we used to have the little books, and we'd, we'd paste them in, and then if you saved, I don't know, 47 bookfuls, you could get a toaster or something. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, redeem is to, is to buy back something. Uh, maybe redeeming from layaway is a better, even a better example. You're, you're, you're taking it back. Who redeemed us, who brought us back from all wickedness. And, okay, so all wickedness, to bring us back from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Okay, so that is a people who are his very own. That is the body of Christ, eager to do what is good. Um, that is the body of Christ. The body of Christ has been redeemed from all wickedness. And Christ has made us pure for himself. And his spirit fills us with eagerness to do what is good. That's how I might, I might put some of that together it goes back to something just so just so fundamental and it's just just this saying that keeps rocking in my head all the time I talk with Lauren Gerlach about this stuff and it's just always there that, that this thing from Simon Chan that God made the world to make the church. The point was never about the mountains and the oceans. As beautiful as they are, the point was never about the mountains and the oceans and the beaches. The point of it all has been to have a people whom God could love and who would love others and who would be eager to do what is good and what is good is what is is God's way, right? It's God who shows us what is good and what is not. And so it's it's just I, I think we don't I think it's just hard sometimes to really to really grasp that God did all of this, that we read about in the Bible, that God did all of this in order to make a renewed people, 
a people who who would love and be kind and be compassionate. And that's why we will all be resurrected, you see? We will all be resurrected, bodily resurrected, living lives. I'm not sure what kind of lives, but living lives, immortal lives, I guess, eternal lives, right? And I guess we might have all, all our own ideas about what 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 that would look like, because but it's good, 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 good. And the point has been to create a people who would who would live lives of goodness and love and compassion and kindness. So okay. So when we come to verse 15, Paul says, These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage people. And rebuke, you know, with all authority, people. He's not just saying anything goes. He can't just say anything goes. Anything goes. <laughs> I think in the old show, anything goes. Well, no, anything doesn't go. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. He's always, I get the feeling he's always, and with Timothy, I think they faced a lot of obstacles and, and felt um, that people were pushing on, on them. And Paul is lifting them up and strengthening them. This, this older man who's been through so much and saying, you have the authority. Use that authority. Don't be afraid to tell people what's what, to get people back on track. Use your authority in a godly way to do that. Don't let anyone despise you. Don't let anyone despise you. And Timothy, it's particularly for your youth. Don't let, don't let them despise you because you, you're not as you know, the sage, ancient elder. You know, God has called you to, to this work. So, all right. Anything else there, Patty? No, it's it's Any... just a very strange word to me that he uses despise. I think of mm. when you say something to somebody, right, that you just really can't stand them, you despise them. It, I don't know, it almost seems like do not let anyone um, discourage you or something like that seems... The NRSV translators say do not let anyone look down on you. Okay. That's yeah. maybe a little better, isn't a little it? Bit I should have remembered that like from this morning. Really, doesn't it yeah. like they really hate you? And yeah, and don't let anyone look down on you because of because of your your, yeah. your youth or yeah. something, right? Yeah, you got this. Or be, just could just be because he's not Paul, right? Mm -hmm. That could be it too easily. Yeah. Imagine you know with the. Imagine it's not always easy for Arthur to follow Robert at St. Andrew, is it? No. 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 Because he's not Robert. You can't expect him to be Robert. Robert's not Arthur. So don't let anyone look down on you. That I think that is a better a better translation of that. So let's just look at the beginning of chapter 3. Um, 
because it kind of goes with the household code. It strikes you as funny or odd because where do they live? They, they live on this island of Crete that is disparaged a lot, even has sayings about it. Cretans are liars. Cretans are brutes. And they are all part of the great Roman Empire. The great Roman Empire, which is ruled by whom? By Caesar in Rome with a, an iron hand and a velvet glove. It's the right way to think about it. And Christians have been persecuted, will be persecuted, not empire-wide not empire by edict from the emperor for a long time, a couple hundred years, but they are persecuted here and there. Might have been on Crete, though there's no nothing in the letter about it. It could be. And yet Paul says, remind the people, these are the Christians, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, right? Why? Paul knows that Caesar is Lord. <laughs> Paul knows that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That comes through loud and clear in Paul. Paul understood the irony of, of, of the words King of the Jews being tacked above Jesus' head. The irony is that they were actually true, even though they were used to be for a mocking purpose. But he urges the people to, as he says in, um, what is it? I can't remember. Honor the emperor, he says elsewhere. Honor the emperor. Here it is. Be obedient to the rulers and authorities. Why? Because he doesn't want them to be maligned, talked about, ignored, he doesn't want he doesn't want them to pick up a bad reputation which will then drive people away and not even give them a chance to hear the truth of the gospel. It's just not that complicated to me. I get that utterly and completely. You just have to understand what Paul's goal is. Paul is not under the, under the illusion that he can he Paul can pull together some folks who can turn the world upside down and put everything right. If he thought that, he would be a fool. And here we are 2,000 years later, and if we think that, we're fools. Human history amply demonstrates the foolishness of that view. It is God who, who is going to be turning the world upside down. We are not going to build the kingdom of God. We can build for it. We can get stuff. We can do better. And we can build stuff for it and build stuff that reflects it and build stuff that enacts it like little flowers popping up. But to build the kingdom of God, that has to be God's work. We won't do it. We won't simply love God and love neighbor every day in every way. I say as 100,000 Russian troops and vast numbers of tanks are all poised to run into Ukraine or something right now and China subjugates... Hong Kong and it'd probably be happy to take Taiwan and the Taliban's running Afghanistan. I mean, that's, that's the realities about who, who, who humanity is. 
So Paul wants the gospel to be heard. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. He does want them to be obedient to the rulers and authorities. He does want them to be obedient to Jesus. In the Great Commission, you know, that's part of it. Teach them to obey, Jesus says, and baptize. Teach them to obey, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is... There's that word again. To do whatever is good. So, of course, we're supposed to be wise, wise in God's ways, in God's eyes. Wise enough to know what is good, what God considers to be good, what is good. And then wise enough to know how to work toward it. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle toward everyone. To be good citizens without rough edges. Right? Without being people who... who who arouse anger and rage, to be gentle toward everyone, to be peaceable, to be considerate. Christians are not people who have changed the world by sticking their fist in other people's faces. So, I think we're going to stop right there, and when we come back next week, we are going to finish the letter to Titus, and then in two weeks... We will begin the book of Isaiah, which begins, interestingly enough, with answering the question of why Jesus came. Why the incarnation? That's how Isaiah begins. Wow, it's kind of bright here right now. It is. You see, in the afternoon, sometimes, yeah, if, to... if the clouds weren't there, it would be blinding. Sure. It's more in your eyes and mine when you sit on the little bench here. All right. Hey, now I look tan compared to... <laughs> I know, because I got this saturation button here. Watch. I'm going to unsaturate us. Ooh. Oh, there we are in black and white, just like, just like the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> yes, it is. Except you're a lot nicer to <laughs> Full me. Full <laughs> saturation. We, we, we need to finish up here. I'm losing it's, it. We are. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's uh, pray together and... Um, at the end of our prayer today, I was going to do the John Wesley Covenant Prayer. Okay. Just for all of us. Okay. And it's it's a prayer, really. I, I know we've said it many, many, many times in church, but it's it really is a tough prayer that you're committing yourself to. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Of course, but it's a we prayer we should it, all be able to pray. Yes. Yeah, whether we sure. say it or not, God does expect this of us. So. That's right. Okay. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together today as we're studying Titus and we thank you for Scott's teaching. We pray, God, for all of us gathered together today and our families and our friends. Lord, there's still this war with COVID going on right now in our country and around the world. And we pray, God, that you would help to keep each of us healthy and safe. And Lord, we do pray for your wisdom and your discernment every day in all the different decisions, God, that we have to make. We know that... Um, 
Some of them sometimes seem like very, very small things, but we know sometimes that they lead into bigger problems later. So we ask for your help, Lord, with that. We also pray, Lord, today for our friends Mike and Candy Sims. Mike is going to have some big surgery tomorrow, and we're just praying, Lord, for his surgeon and for his entire medical team, Lord. We pray, God, for your just your guidance for them as they do this heart surgery tomorrow for Mike. We pray for both Mike and Sandy, God, for you to, Candy, to keep them calm and just in your, in your zone, Lord, just in your zone. If they start getting nervous and anxious, Lord, for them to come back to concentrate on you and that you will be there with them in every way. So, Lord, today, as we are finishing up our prayer, we're just going to pray the prayer that John Wesley wrote many years ago. I am no longer mine but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord, for this day. We lift up all these prayers in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patty. Bye, friends. Okay, bye, friends. See you tomorrow at 12 noon. Yes, back to John. Palm Sunday tomorrow. Palm, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday on a Tuesday. Wow. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.